The word is brazenness, and this is This Week in Common Sense. Speaking of brazenness, the first one this week was Biden brazenness against religion. We did have a comment on this one uh, about, you know, when are we going to hear about what the uh, the radical kind of religious right is uh, is doing. Uh, and there there is so much out there on transgender issues, uh, on you know, on, on abortion, on, on other social issues. And it's not as if, you know, the right always does everything perfectly. Um, but there is the point of this piece. Well, the, the, the impetus is that, is that Joe Biden, uh, is, is not very friendly to religion. And, uh, and, you know, he's, he replaced, uh, uh, the holy name college uh friary uh did i mispronounce it i'm sure i did um that basically works at walter reed and and so you know it's one hospital somewhere but but it's emblematic of of his attitude uh as a devout uh, catholic um and that is that they they stopped the priests from basically being the, the clergy and uh, and instead went with this company that that, you know, provides all kinds of things like you know, uh, uh, material or different, you know, you need to have a party. Here's the stuff or something. In other words, they don't have anything to do with providing clergy services. And, and we could debate whether we need to be providing clergy services, whether people couldn't contract a, a different way. There's a zillion different ways you could attack this. But if you're going to provide clergy services to military people, and you've got a, a bigger argument there because they're like on the base, they're housed there. The, the, the military is a little different than the post office. And... Um, which pretends to be private, but is not. Um, but but anyway, it it seems to me, you know, you you have some argument to do things a little differently in the in the military. But this doesn't. You don't even have to reach there if you're going to do it. You would do it in a way that would actually provide the services that you're trying to provide, and not in a way that would kind of try to trip or kneecap the services that are that are supposed to be provided. And uh, it's not the first thing we link in this uh, piece uh, to, uh, and, and this has been true for a number of people, but uh, I believe it's Matt, uh, it might be Mark, Hauk, uh, but the, the Michigan guy who, uh, you know, pro-life demonstrator, protester, uh, there was an incident where uh, uh, pro-choice, uh, pro-abortion activist was, you know, kind of in his son's face and so on, and he separated the two physically, physically in in a way that created no physical damage. And local authorities looked into that case. This isn't the the uh, Biden brazenness against religion. This is one of the links to a, a separate piece that we had done. Uh, well, we've done several pieces 
uh, about that that case. And it's H-O-U-C-K, if, you, if anybody wants to Google it. Uh, and the local authorities looked at it and said, there's, there's nothing here. A year and a half later, the Biden Justice Department decides to prosecute this guy. Okay, that's outrageous. But so go arrest him. Go call him up. Say, you're, you know, it's time to show up. We were filing charges. No, this, this guy's guilty of no violence at any time. There's no suspicion of he's going to commit violence. They go with a dawn raid on his home so that they can terrorize his wife and his kids. And I'll tell you, as someone who's been involved in some of these, uh, the government has decided to abuse somebody. And when that person is you, uh, it doesn't feel good. But when that person that is suffering is your wife or your kid, it's a whole different ballgame. And um, people who know me, I, I've been in trouble a lot. <laughs> so, uh, not well, really lot, maybe a bit much, but <laughs> you that, that famous uh, Oklahoma guy after you a bunch of years ago, fairly recently. Yes, I did. But... And, and of course, long ago, I refused to sign a draft form and ended up, you know, in prison for that. Uh, and, you know, when I was younger and did that, it was it was less of an impact on kids. I had a, a, a one year old and it was a huge impact. I don't want to minimize the impact because that was painful then. But as my kids were older and could verbalize, you know, hear your wife say when you're on the phone and you're in Oklahoma, you know, oh, she, you know, she was just upset because she didn't know if you were coming back. And and not didn't know if you were coming back because it's a kid who imagined something, but didn't know if you were coming back because it's a kid who's old enough and smart enough to know what's going on. And uh, and and so, you know, you you just it's, it's why you try to look the wheels of justice in an almost perfect system, almost perfect, are going to grind over people at times that they just shouldn't recognizing that you know it's why i argue every policeman and every prosecutor anybody in the criminal justice system should have to log a certain number of hours of the andy griffith show and learn how sheriff taylor handles law enforcement and you know it's not urban but i guarantee you there are lessons that that they'll pick up and and i think people who are police would greatly appreciate that show because it it's you know look it's it's uh, Hollywood, but um, but it's it's about respecting people and that's an easier way to go anyway. I don't want to go, go off on that tangent, uh, having already gone off on tangents. But it's uh, what was done to Mr. Hauk uh, is just beyond the pale. He was then acquitted in the case, so all of this was done to someone that the jury said not guilty, unanimously said not guilty. And this is the sort of thing that the Biden administration, he's a, you know, he want, he comes off, he has a, a, a shtick that, uh, hey, I'm a Mr. Nice Guy and let's all be friends and eat ice cream. But his Justice Department has, has treated a lot of people 
very thuggishly. And um, it's and, it's and you see a religious bias there. At least I see one generally, frankly, among Democrats. Uh, I, I find it very weird, considering I remember what it was like back in the sixties and seventies. Remember uh, when we were young, there was no obvious bias, at least not against Christians. They were no, both Republicans no. and Democrats were Christians in America. I don't believe that's the case anymore. I believe that Democrats are generally uh, really hate, and they've come to hate and loathe uh, evangelical Christians, especially, and Catholic Christians, especially, um, because there is actually an evangelical uh, subset of Catholics. Well, because because that is a force of people that aren't willing to go along with some things, and uh, yeah, and that, that was part of your point. I don't remember. I actually don't remember the piece anymore, but I I, I assumed that that was the point towards the end. <laughs> Yes, yes. That well, uh, you know, to me, you know, talking about government animosity toward Christianity, and especially toward any, any, uh, you know, I mean, in, in some cases, I think they might step back when politics, when there's numbers enough to make a make a difference. But this isn't new. The new thing in my my kind of observation is that Biden has, has kind of clinched the fist, that, that there's a roughness, that there's a, I mean, going after this, you know, one anti-abortion person um, in, in that way and trying to put this guy in prison for years uh, and arresting him in a way that is dangerous. Um, you know, well, their whole, their whole, view of criminal justice seems to be some Marxist nightmare. So there's that too. But um, so let's, let's scramble back to like some safe ground, something good happened. We have a positive uh, commentary on Tuesday, which is freedom versus force at Harvard. And let me just say about time, about time, uh, some professors got together at Harvard, a hundred professors. Now they have 2,400 uh, professors at Harvard, so it's not the majority, but a hundred professors got together and said, we are for free speech. People should be able to say what they want to say without being shouted down, without being threatened with violence. And I think it's a, it's a big deal. It's, it's, you know, because oftentimes you've got people who they, you know, college is a new thing. You're off away from home you're looking to see how it's going to, how does this work? New environment. And if you've got these like, you know, Antifa-esque, you know, intellectual thugs who are trying to silence people and nobody speaks up, well, then a lot of people are likely to keep their mouth shut. And if those same intellectual thugs are there and and people do push back and do speak up and professors say, well, that's not the way I feel. I feel this way. And all of a sudden that frees people in a, in a real way and, and in a way that matters because then they start to speak up. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of, of civil discourse is to do it without being afraid you're going to be killed. <laughs> and uh, because that has a tendency to skew the conversation to the most threatening side. 
And that's, I mean, that's kind of how college, um, you know, most of my professors were, were communists, socialists, communists, uh, my political theory professor, my advisor was a, trying to start a young socialist alliance, uh, you know, liberal, the far left Democrats were not good enough. And, uh, and, you know, I love these guys in the sense that they were, they were smart. Uh, and they sure didn't try to shut me down. And I'm sure that there's somebody at some point felt like they were not fair. Or they didn't know they did try to shut, shut me down. It's nothing like the stories you hear today. But when you think about these, geez, our colleges are full of, of Marxist professors. I think they were pretty full of Marxist professors in the late 70s when old people went to college. And there, the, the difference is that they had to respect students' opinions some. They, they couldn't gang up and create like a Marxist wonderland and because there was too much pushback. Now they feel there's no pushback. There may be some controversy, but that just makes them famous. That just probably makes them a little bit of money and people stick microphones in their face and they, you know, it's like me. I've, I've always wanted to be an author. Not because I would write anything, but then I could just sit back and pontificate about things. <laughs> As a kid, that's kind of how I was like, oh, that seems like a good job. Anyway, uh, I'm, uh, I, I jest a little bit. But, but uh, speaking of jesting, let's just move to number three. Oh, when, wow, you're, you're moving through the list. I am. Well, I just can't wait to get to this one. Debt for Pakistan's trans. And I mean, there's selfishness and then there is outrageous selfishness. And any American who thinks for a second that their hard-earned income is theirs to keep without any consideration for what trans people in Pakistan are going through and the sort of educational opportunities that we as taxpayers should be giving them. Uh, that's just, that's just selfish and mean spirited. But uh, we find out that uh, Congress is talking about let's spend money uh, doing educational programs for Pakistani trans and uh, and I think as we were doing this, you kind of pointed out the, the great, you know, saying, which is, uh, which I incorporated here, uh, which is, you know, you always hear this, um, you know, but aren't there, aren't there needy people in America when we're giving to needy people? Aren't there trans in America that we could be giving this to? Uh, Tim, I think we've got that covered. We're now moving on to Pakistan. I'm sure that Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia will be next on our on our hit parade uh, for for you know trans education. And it it you know the funny thing to me is or, or the reason to do this script. It's really not very funny at all, but the reason to do this script is we we debate all kinds of things, and some of them you know they're kind of important. And so even though you may think, well, we're getting ripped off by the military, by the way, we're getting ripped off by the military, but that we got to do it. And how do we, you, you think about how you control it and so on. And you realize that certain things you're going to fight and the person on the other side, they don't want big deficit spending. 
they just believe we've got to educate kids or we've got to do this or we have to make sure our water is safe. If we are spending money to have educational efforts at Pakistani trans in Pakistan, that is the point at which we all know they're full of it. They will spend money on anything. And, and forgive, forgive me all trans people for, for holding up the Pakistani trans, uh, you know, to give a hard time. It's not them. It's not, there's, it's not the Pakistani trans. They're not over there demonstrating. We demand American money now. Again, this is not the trans community doing it, even the Pakistani trans community. This is our left-wing lunatic activists and people in government who are also activists deciding we have so much money, even though we're spending you know, trillion dollar deficits, that we can just throw money anywhere. Or they believe this is, you know, defending the country. Well, that's second to making sure that, you know, Pakistan is, uh, is, a, is a place where, you know, we're not doing anything to make it to where they might be safe from attack. We're just giving them a bunch of jargon, it sounds like. Speaking of the debt, uh, I just got a, this came over my vision of something from Justin Amash. Justin Amash, uh, former representative. I don't remember where Michigan, he's from. Michigan. Republican, okay. Michigan, and then became yeah. an independent when he kind of got. And, uh, and actually joined the Libertarian Party as well. So, so he, did. He, he did all those things. But his, he, his post from the 27th, April 27th, uh, says, the Democrats' plan will increase the national debt to $52 trillion by 2033. The Republicans' plan will increase the national debt to $47 trillion by 2033. These parties are not being led by serious people. And, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons, I guess, that, that debt for Pakistani trans, which is the title of your piece, uh, is, seems so appropriate is it's such an absurd an expenditure to teach English to Pakistani trans, you know, or to make right, to make right. to make something special of the trans in Pakistan. I mean, it's just that's just something they did. That was more important than oh, maybe we shouldn't spend the half a million dollars or no, was it was it five hundred million dollars? It was it was some I don't remember the what was the figure? Do you remember? I, you know, I don't. Uh, I have to put my glasses on. Well, I bet I, I bet I could actually look at it. Uh, it was. Um, Oh, I was to say two hundred billion. It wasn't. It was five hundred thousand. It was half yeah. a million. That's not. I mean, come on, that Paul. Come on, Paul. That's not what's causing our deficit. But, it, <laughs> but everything. Oh, if you told me that I was that I was thirty two trillion dollars in debt, and I went out and blew half a million, I would really be an idiot for blowing half a million, wouldn't I? I mean, isn't isn't that it's like when it's like when you you realize, oh, we're gonna have to tighten. Don't you look for anything? And if you find something that's just a little bit of it that's oh, but we could easily do without that, well, you cut it. You don't like oh well, but that's not the whole pie. You do say, well, that's not the whole pie. If what you really are is a spoiled brat with power, 
and you just want to keep that power, and you really don't have any interest whatsoever or any care about what's going to happen long term. <clears throat> and here's the kicker you recognize, as any serious person should, that every penny spent by the federal government is a penny that a congressman, every congressman, and, and, and people running for president, or not running, but who are president, and cabinet secretaries and so on, can take credit, especially members of Congress. And so they never want to cut anything. They never want to cut it. As long as the country isn't going belly up, or your taxes aren't being hiked up, which is why we're so much in debt, as long as they don't have to face those pains, which are you and me, then they don't care. They just want to spend and spend and spend. And they'll spend on anything because it's going to be another constituent they can buy. And that money's coming back to them. You know, for, for some reason, people who join Congress, I don't know how they get there, uh, they end up very wealthy people. And I don't think that that's an accident. I don't think it's coincidence. It's uh, And it's not all that they're getting paid off. They're in, all of a sudden, they're in with a lot of people who can help you. And, and you know, in, in my life, I've been involved in politics. And, you know, people, unfortunately, haven't been just handing me money. But people who get to know you and so on, it's, and, and of course, that's a great argument for term limits. because. So often we think of the corruption and we're mad at, at Congress and so on. But part of it is that you elect people in Congress and then they're, they are going to learn to work the system. And, and whether that's for good or for bad, it depends on how good or, or for bad they are. But they are going to work that system, which also means that, the, that elections are likely to get less and less competitive as they've learned to work the system more and more to get reelected. And guess what? As people have incumbency, elections get less and less competitive. So, so many of these, these things, and it's, it's part of the brilliance of the Constitution. I mean, the Constitution fails in a, in a number of places, but its basic grasp of trying to balance power, realizing that, that government isn't run by angels, and so you just can't give completely unaccountable power. And sometimes the only way to, to, to balance that power is to give power to another branch and all of that and to separate government, local, state, and national, which, you know, is pretty much gone. But there's two more pieces in the week. Backpedaling at the Speed of Lies was on Thursday. And I do like favorite, that title. My favorite title, I was about to say. And... Uh, and this, this piece, I mean, we've done so much stuff on the lab leak and on, on the pandemic and, and almost none of it from a scientific standpoint. I and mean, we've tried to link the scientific stuff and, and you, I, I think more than I, you know, have followed that and followed some of the, the people on YouTube and, and now Rumble, uh, you know, you're like, we're pretty smart to move over uh, as we have as well. But, but, you know, and I followed to some degree, but most of our analysis was simply, it is so obvious they're lying to us. And, you know, and just pointing out some of the, the 
obvious problems with what's going on. I mean, if, if someone thinks about the lab leak and, you know, if they go any depth into it, they realize what a clown show the whole thing was. And that only with a media that is completely compliant, lazy, rotten, compliant, could you get away with what Fauci got away with? And and so, you know, but that's what we've been pointing out. And and then you see two years, three years later, I mean, this story is going on for a while and uh, and it comes out, you know, oh, the lab leak, you know, might be a possibility. And then just, you know, a month ago or so, the the Washington Post has a big thing about all the lab leaks and problems that China has had. Where was that reporting when it mattered, when decisions were being made? Uh, it just, the, the investigation wasn't being done. Of course, it's not like they've gone over to China and investigated since then. You know, they haven't. It's always there. It was all there. They didn't care to look for it because they didn't want us to know if it was there. Um, anyway, and, and so what we have is Fauci um, basically saying he didn't, you know, he didn't shut anything down. He didn't do anything. Uh, just a, it, and and it's it's pathetic to listen to him talk. It's it's almost as if he's like, please, please don't put me in jail for too long. You know, he might as well just say it like that. But of course, the media is not covering it for the most part. I mean, if you watch Fox News, if you get, you know, if, if you get the Epic Times, if you get different publications, then then, you know, you might see it. Um, but it's it's pathetic. And then, of course, there was also Randy Weingarten, who uh, is the uh, head of the American Federation of Teachers. And she pointed out that, oh, no, they work tirelessly to keep schools open. And I think one of the, the saddest things about the, the pandemic and, and a sign of just how political it was, was the fact that the safest, the safest workplace from what I've seen and read in America was the public school, private school too, but school, a place with school age kids it turned out a couple of things that I saw, which, you know, again, I didn't look at them as a, as a, you know, uh, epidemiologist or, or anything, but um, that kids not only were not susceptible to serious cases of COVID or, or that they also were not spreaders of COVID. And, uh, and so in essence, the whole shutdown was for one reason. Teachers unions have huge, huge power in our society. And so they do what they want. And if it means that kids, especially poor kids, especially kids of color, uh, have to suffer, well, then so be it. Which, of course, also tells you that all, all these years of the kids, we do it for the kids, and, and I'm not suggesting that that there's a lot of teachers at home right now going, I don't care about kids. I do it for me. I am suggesting that the folks they pay dues to behave exactly like that. Exactly like that. And uh, and and so it's 
you know, they use their political power. And again, we live in a society where people complain about inequality, which I have no problem with inequality. I like everybody to be a lot wealthier, uh, even if it's at unequal levels. That's the way I feel. Uh, and so I think the inequality is a stupid thing to, it's like you got boats that are sinking, lift them up. Don't, don't like make it equal. And, and so, uh, don't sink every boat. So I'm, I, I don't care so much about the inequality, but I see a society in which in all kinds of ways, we constantly up the prices of things and, and we, we, place burdens on people that are, are are really much harder on the poor than on the rich. For instance, during COVID, your kids were going to do a lot better if they lived in a house where there were computers and there were books and there were all kinds of things. And so any inequality in the educational level of kids when they went to school that might have been erased and not erased by holding down the kid who knew more, but by teaching the kid who knew less, you're going to lose that when you, when you have the kids out of school. And, you know, there's a million different ways this happens, but it's, it's, uh, it's just astounding to me how often people talk about the poor in ways that sounds really empathetic and then advocate policies that are devastating to the poor. They're called Democrats usually. But <laughs> yeah, um, my, you know, one of my biggest complaints about the COVID period was the activation of the mob mentality among the American citizenry. And it wasn't even, I mean, that was as annoying to me as the deception and just deceptions and the folly of the leaders. And I think we found out during the uh, COVID period who the mob leaders are, who the natural social leaders in your community who press for mask mandates when they don't make sense, who like lockdowns. They happen to be members of teachers unions a lot. And, and, and you can understand, understand why if your job is to hurt a bunch of children. So what's your attitude gonna be when you have, to, when, when you have an occasion to hurt a bunch of adults? I know this is not something you want to carry on a conversation along about because it's just people have different attitudes. I just don't trust teachers as as political animals. I don't think we should be electing public school teachers as as for anything, uh, because people who people in the business of marshalling children aren't really good at dealing with adults. I don't know. I don't trust them. So that's that's I, my. I wonder about that because I think one of the biggest differences. Um, None of my kids went to public schools. Um, they did go to private school. They were mostly homeschooled, but they went to private school some uh, when they were little uh, and then went to community college as they got to like well, high, sure, school, sure. high school age. But um, the, the, at one point, uh, my youngest was looking at maybe going to high school and, uh, and, and largely on a socially I'd like to be around more kids. And, uh, and so I thought, well, that's a pretty logical, you know, you're pretty much going to need to do that. I mean, there's other ways you could be around more kids, you know, but, but that's one way to do it. Um, 
And I remember the paperwork, which, which <laughs> my wife showed me parts of it. And he was kind of like, I agree, the child is yours. And whatever you say goes, you know, it wasn't quite that, but it, it, it smacked of that sort of thing. And, and for parents who had always homeschooled them, you know, if you're going to take a trip somewhere, you're going to do something, you know, I think my kids got to see and do and learn a whole bunch. Uh, and, and I, I sure would hate for that to end because they're in public school. So, you know, you're taking a trip to Rome or not that we were taking trips like that all the time, but you know, if, if some kid has some trip to go someplace, I can't imagine that that kid could learn more in a public school or any school ever anywhere than they could learn taking that trip. With their, and, and that they're going with their parents, all the better. Well, anyway, that was an interesting time in America and it's not over with yet, I guess. Uh, I sort of end up uh, almost incredulous about how weird it was just it's it's incredible it was weird it was a strange time i wasn't expecting it i'm trying to set up desperately desperately trying to set you up incredulity doesn't doesn't cut it it. okay so that was a lame that was a lame uh, no it was actually pretty good um you know it became lame but but hey um i appreciate it and what was this even about this is a this is just simply the uh the argument for him excuse me i have to can't speak today i'm so tired the argument from incredulity that's why i put that title on there because of that one thing that doesn't have much to do about the whole piece the whole piece is about an arkansas yes. man uh who who hauls garbage or provides dumpsters and then the local government decide well you can't do that <laughs> and, and isn't it i loved it too because it's like people are so smart and entrepreneurial he figures out that he can basically provide dumpsters, pick them up, throw them away and, and throw the stuff away, not the dumpster, but, but is, uh, you know, it's like, he's kind of a middleman making the connections and making this whole, uh, you know, rent a dumpster thing work, not for, and, and they already have that sort of thing. If you're a construction company, if you're something else, but, uh, but he was doing it for regular people who might need a dumpster. Um, and, and what a neat business. And of course, so what's the response? It's against the law to contract with, you know, with uh, this guy, you have to do it through the county. That's what the, the government passes an ordinance to do that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it is the drive to monopolize um, and that's the, the whole point of this piece that they want to control everything. And, and, uh, as I've often said, uh, I'm afraid that we live in the freest totalitarian society in the history of the world and freest because we've got freedom written into the laws. We believe we're free. We claim we're free. If someone says we're not, we're saying, Hey, wait. And, and yet we have people in office, some of whom we voted for or, or couldn't vote enough times to, to stop them from getting in office because you can only vote once. That they their attitude is total government. I mean, that is is regularly and and I don't mean they're always jackboot thugs wanting to you know do terrible things, 
but their their thoughts about the environment, their thoughts about education, their thoughts about regulation of everything is that some expert ought to be deciding all of that. And the problem is that's not how the world works. It it doesn't, you know, it it's it's I'm one of the things this week somebody mentioned something about, you know, that's not how science works. That the the great thing about science, it it uh I wonder if it's actually on this piece. Uh no, it's not. No, but it was on the previous piece. Yeah. But John Brennan had a comment uh, on this piece that I thought was really interesting. Um, the drive to monopolize is driven by the misunderstanding of profit. And he was giving us a hard time because we had a typo in the piece, but uh, uh, is, is driven by the misunderstanding of profit and its necessity in signaling for the most efficient use of capital. No good or service was ever not first supplied by the private market, except world war and nuclear weapons. And those I could have done without. So he makes a good point here, plus uh, in a very pithy way at the end. Apparently, uh, John Brennan doesn't like uh, wars or nuclear war. And I'm with him. I think he's on to something. Yeah, and uh, the argument from incredulity is that people, there's a certain type of mind, and sometimes maybe it's just you, you're sort of, if you're raised in a public school, right, especially, you know, by government-paid te teachers and, and you're just surrounded by it, you just assume that private people can't do anything, that you just can't do that, uh, like in garbage collection, uh, which is, it's a grand example. It's not a difficult industry, by the way. My county regulates who can deliver garbage professionally as well. There's no real reason to do it, right. uh, but they do. And so you have to go to one place and, you know, they charge an arm and a leg and, you know. Even, even police services, there are all kinds of private police services. And there should be because there are people who are going to want certain protections. But there are also places there's a... a I don't know if I ever did a common sense about it. I think I think we did uh, do one years ago, but there's there was a guy in Detroit uh, who had started a private kind of police operation, and they were very smart about how they confronted people and how they dealt with potential criminals and so on. But they had a a, a very good success rate, and they had a lot of happy customers. Um, and, and it's the sort of thing where in essence, it's, it's private security for poor people, people like you and me. I mean, we're not, we're not going to hire the same kind of security that some big corporation is or the mall or, you know, but, um, but we could maybe 20 of us could share a, uh, you know, and maybe it's more than 20, I don't know, but but there's all kinds of ways that these services can be done. And it's not to say, okay, just shut down, shut down the police department, private enterprise will spring up and do it. But you, uh, and, and I think the good point that John Brennan makes is all of these things started out private. None of them started out that the government was doing them. And, and so 
there's that, but there's also the fact that if the government did start out doing them, the way to find out whether people could do it on their own without the government, in which case that's a kind of a clumsy way to do it if it can be done to where people just contract and we don't have to worry about elected people adding that to their plate. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing where you you they're not going to ever want to give up any power. And the only way that that's going to start to be done by the public in a voluntary way is for them to allow it to be done in a voluntary way. And when they shut it down by law, you know, they know we we don't have any. I mean, if, if it was going to fail miserably, they'd kind of sit there and go, let it fail and then say, you know, look at us. By the way, the uh, story was at Reason Magazine, and the guy in question is Stephen Hedrick. And what I, I kind of admired about the guy is that he built his business dumpster by dumpster. That is, that he would buy one, and then when he had enough money, he'd buy another. He didn't go into debt at all yes. in the whole process. And, you know, that's kind of an inspiring story for everybody, isn't it? <laughs> it's it is. I've, I've known a, a couple of people who just didn't believe in going to the debt. And and uh, and I'm sure there are some people who don't believe in going into the debt who weren't so successful. But the guys I know who didn't go into any debt, boy, did they have a lot of stuff and no debt. <laughs> so so it does seem to make a lot of sense. It's uh, I have to say when when I was a uh, very young man, uh, you know, coming off of being a, a fugitive and in prison and so on, uh, I had a, a pretty serious amount of credit card debt. I certainly thought it was serious. And uh, and we were able to sell a house uh, and make enough to basically pay off that credit card debt. And boy, talk about your life no longer being this grind, you know, monthly, oh my goodness, you know, what are we going to do? And have never, never had a credit card go for interest we have i don't think we've paid a penny of interest uh since that time just because it 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 was i mean financially uh, when you're talking credit card debt you're talking now where they can charge you they can charge you real money for that you know and at that time i think there was some uh you know arkansas had a usury law so it was under we were able i don't know how but somehow able to get a credit card that was like eight percent or something but most of them are 16 or 20 or, you know, that, that was not a good time for interest rates. And actually credit cards, as I understand, are always horrible interest rates. So it's a, it's a nice convenience if you pay them off every month. Uh, but if you don't have any money, it's hard to pay them off, which is, which is why you, you have to balance those things. And, and I won't, I won't claim any credit. I'll just, my wife is very, very careful about us balancing those things. And saying, what? you spent what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just went to town today and went to just a little bit of groceries and I spent what? Uh, I, say that, <laughs> I say that a lot more now than I did a few years ago. Yes, she she will always say, she'll tell me about something that's gone up 100%. And she'll go, that 100%, that's why there's 8% inflation. Because <laughs> Her view is, I think inflation is more like 100%. I mean, right. it, it's, it, it's amazing. You know, I, I don't buy as much in the marketplace, 
but it's amazing what I do that that you know costs are costs are higher. Right. I uh, the loaf of bread. I only buy one kind of bread. In fact, it's only one make of bread, and I only buy it several times a year. But I like it a lot, so I like to have sourdough bread, a specific brand of sourdough bread. It's cheap. It's it's nice big pieces. It look just looks good. I love sourdough bread. Yeah, I do. And and uh, I used to be able to buy it for three dollars and fifty cents a loaf. Uh, you know, like two three years ago, and now I bought one today for four dollars sixty five, four dollars and ninety five, something like that. And I thought it was a deal because in town, you know, a few days before, I saw it for over six dollars. The same wow. kind of bread for over six dollars. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's what eight percent inflation. That, that's what. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's almost doubled. The price of that that kind of bread is almost doubled in most yeah. stores. And I don't, you know, I don't know anything about pricing, you know, beyond you know, economics textbook stuff, which doesn't tell me anything practical. It's just, it's just that I know what I'm paying now, and I know it's a lot more. And so we live in an age of inflation, and uh, that's unfortunate. We live in an age in which the products, I remember a Lyndon LaRouche commercial. Lyndon LaRouche was some loony guy running for president always with enough money to, to put ads on TV. And, uh, and people would get him confused as a libertarian because Lyndon LaRouche, both names start with L and libertarian starts with L. And I always thought, I, I don't think that's how it works. But as people would go, isn't he the libertarian? And you're like going, no. And he hated libertarians. Well, for one thing, he didn't want to legalize drugs. So he was always talking about that. He had weird stuff and it involved the Queen of England and different things. I can't remember whether she was good or evil or whatever, but it was it was wild stuff. And he had I remember he ran commercials about how the coming time when food is going to disappear from American shelves. And it was funny. I mean, you just laughed at it. And, you know, you, you kind of think, what's the chances he's predicting that we're not going to have any food at the grocery store? It was a joke and it, it was not very effective. Today, if he was running those ads, you'd have a huge amount of people saying, oh, my goodness, I wonder if he knows something because it's so freaking believable. It's like, I mean, it, it, we live in a, in a time in which huge cataclysmic catastrophe is possible. And it's possible with leaders who are not leaders. I remember, and, and this, is, this is 10 years, this is before Donald Trump and Sleepy Joe, but 10 years ago, I remember saying to a friend who's kind of a, one time told me, he said, Paul, I'm, I'm kind of a mainstream Democrat. I think I'm your worst nightmare. And I was like, well, you're a friend, but yes, you are my worst nightmare. Anyway, uh, um, now I'm going to forget what I was just about to say. I don't know I how you got to run the loose to your friend. I don't know. Uh, something about inflation? Oh, oh, that I, as a libertarian, am worried about how little legitimacy our leaders have. That as someone who's fairly dismissive of government and who wants very small government, isn't looking for government to do all kinds of things, but we have the opposite of that. We have this huge government 
And we have people involved in it who have no street cred, who've got no legitimacy in the minds of average, everyday, smart people. The, 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 the common decency of the American people and the common good sense knows these guys are not to be trusted. And we've added to that Donald Trump and this complete freak out by the deep state and the deep media and the, the big science crazy folks and so on. And then we got Sleepy Joe. Now we've got a president who's like the, the episode of Star Trek where they just had the head of the guy and it was really a computer. That, I mean, who is the Biden? Who's running the country? And it's it's and so not only is it more believable that we could have World War Three or another pandemic or a complete breakdown of the electrical grid or all kinds of terrible stuff? But we'd be having it with nobody, nobody we trust or have any confidence in uh, running the show while it's happening and probably locking us down and telling us they'll shoot us if we leave our house. You know, that sort of uh, that, that really adds a nice touch to, you know, cataclysmic uh, catastrophe. Mm-hmm. 